Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners to this week's podcast episode on the Pascagoula abduction case. Thanks for stopping by. In this episode, we're delving into a UFO sighting and abduction case from 1973. It takes place along the Gulf Coast in the state of Mississippi. Pascagoula is a small town of approximately 27,000 people in the extreme southeast corner of the state, just to the east of Biloxi. This case became a media sensation across the country, causing an influx of reporters to the Pascagoula area. At this time, the general public of the United States were well-versed in UFO sightings, and exposure to purported alien abductions had been going on for a while as well, with the infamous Betty and Barney Hill abduction case occurring some 12 years earlier. Still, the strangeness of the described aliens alleged in this incident drew even more attention to the case. In addition, most alien abduction cases to this point had occurred in remote areas, you know, like secluded highways or rural or outdoor areas, which would make sense for aliens who might want some privacy while abducting humans. However, though Pascagoula is a small town, the location of this abduction was in an area widely visited and the location could have been seen by passerbys easily. There is a bridge nearby crossing the Pascagoula River and buildings on the other riverbank. It also did not happen in the middle of the night or early morning hours, but rather on a Thursday night just after work. And it all started with two men going fishing. Pascagoula, Mississippi sits on the Gulf of Mexico and has the Pascagoula River running through it. Prior to World War II, it was just a sleepy fishing village of about 5,000 people. But the population skyrocketed with the war-driven shipbuilding industry, peaking in the 1970s and 80s. In 1973, many men from the area worked at the shipyards, including 42-year-old Charles Hickson and 19-year-old Calvin Parker. It was Parker's first day on the job at F.B. Walker & Sons Shipyard, a job Hickson had helped him to get. Hickson was Parker's foreman at the shipyard, and Parker was the son of a good friend of his. It was a Thursday night on October the 11th when Hickson decided to go fishing after work and take along Parker. Parker, new to town, hadn't brought his fishing gear with him, so Hickson offered to loan him some of his. Now, for a man that loves to fish from the south to offer you to use his fishing equipment, that's just unheard of, Parker said in a 2018 interview. The two decided to go out to an abandoned boat launch not far from the shipyard and were still there after the sun went down. It started like many fishing trips with no fish being caught. The old abandoned shipyard, they had a little pier out front and we were on that pier. I'm going to guess it was about 6 o'clock in the evening. It had just started getting dark, but it was kind of a bright moon, Parker said. 
The events the two men reported that night would later thoroughly derail Parker's pursuit of a quiet, mundane life. They were both devoted fishermen, but they disagreed on where they started fishing that night. Hickson said they started at the foot of the grain elevator, a huge landmark, and worked their way down to the pier at the old Shapeter shipyard. The men tried fishing in one location, but swarming bugs prompted them to head back to the shipyard where there were fewer lights to attract insects. Parker said they went straight to the Shapeter pier, arriving at about 6 p.m. The entry road to the shipyard was rough going with high grass, so they parked about 100 yards from the water and pushed their way through walking, Parker said. They both said they had no way of keeping up with the time. Parker pointed out posted signs to Hickson when they pulled up, but Hickson brushed off his concerns about breaking the law. Now, that don't mean nothing. I fish here all the time. They walked down to the old pier, cast out their lines, and waited for a bite. Sometime between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m., Parker was fed up with fishing there and wanted to leave. They were between the U.S. 90 Bridge and the CSX Railroad Bridge when it happened. I distinctly remember I was looking at a boat across the water. It was an old oar boat that they do the weather with, and it was made out of steel, and I was thinking to myself, now, how does something made out of steel float, Parker remembered. That's where my mind was, and that's when I noticed the blue hazy lights coming in from behind. You could see the reflection across the water. Thinking the lights were the police, he turned to Hickson and said, Charlie, we're in trouble. You lied to me, and we're fixing to go to jail. Parker said he turned around, again saw hazy blue lights, and thought police were looking at his car. I was just getting ready to get some more bait, Hickson told the Washington Post in 1975, when I heard a kind of zipping sound. I looked up, and I saw a blue flashing light. In a 2018 interview with the Mississippi Clarion Ledger, Parker said his initial thought was law enforcement officers had arrived to tell the two fishermen they needed to leave the property. However, when Parker looked up, he realized the light was coming from a craft like nothing he had ever seen. A big light came out of the clouds, Parker said. It was a blinding light, and it was hard to tell with the light so bright, but it looked like it was shaped like a football. I'd say, just estimating, it was about 80 foot. It made very little sound. It was just a hissing noise. Parker said three legless creatures floated from the craft. One had no neck with gray wrinkled skin. Another had a neck and appeared more feminine. Parker described their hands as being shaped like mittens or crab claws. When one of the creatures put one of its claws around his arm, Parker said he was terrified, but then another feeling came over his body. I think they injected us with something to calm us down, he said. I was kind of numb and went along with the program. Parker said the creatures held his and Hickson's arms and floated them into the craft where examinations were performed on the two. Parker described being taken aboard the craft down a hallway and into a room where the creature placed him on an examination table made entirely of glass. According to Parker, at that point, the gray, wrinkled creature that brought him aboard the ship left the room. That's when something came out of the ceiling about the size of a deck of cards, he said. The square-shaped object circled around him, making a series of clicking noises. 
I never thought about it until here lately, but it was like uh, this MRI I was in, except the click wasn't that loud. And then it just shot back up in the ceiling. Then a smaller being entered the room, which Parker said made him feel more at ease. He couldn't move his body, but rolled his head toward the creature. She was normal. Matter of fact, if I'd been in a bar room drinking or something and was single, you know, at this time, I'd have probably asked her out on a date. It looked just like a human, he explained, except for its middle fingers. Her two middle fingers were longer, uh, longer than what an average person's would be. Parker recalled that without saying a word, the creature put its left hand on his jaw and opened his mouth. That's when she took her right hand and started running it down my throat, and I, I started gagging. She had scratched it up real bad, and it was bleeding. It was a mess. It pulled its hand back out. Parker had the impression that it didn't want to hurt him anymore. Then it made a groan from deep within its throat. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard an alligator's mating call where they vibrate the whole air around you, but uh, that's how it sounded. That's when the creature that Parker said initially brought him aboard the craft returned and carried him back to the bank of the river. You know, I really believe to this day it was a robot, he would later say. That's where the story really starts, and then my life turned pretty much to hell right after that. Hickson told a similar story, though embellished somewhat over the years, the basic story remained the same. And they glided me into that thing, Hickson said. You know how you just guide somebody. All of us moved like we were floating through air. When I got in there, they had me, you know. They just kind of had me there. There were no seats, no chain. They just moved me around. I, I couldn't resist them. I just floated. Felt no sensation, no pain. They kept me in that position a little while, and then they'd raise me back up. Hickson also tried to describe a machine he thought was used for a medical examination. No, it wasn't like no x-ray machine. There ain't no way to describe it. It looked like an eye, like a big eye. It had some kind of an attachment to it. It moved. It just looked like a big eye, and it went all over my body, up and down, and then they left me. Hickson described the aliens as being about five feet tall with a single leg and foot-like appendage without toes. He said they had what appeared to be ears, a nose, and a mouth, but none of the features looked human. He said he was so scared he couldn't remember if they had eyes. He also said he couldn't remember details about leaving the craft, only Parker's reaction. The only thing I remember is that kid Calvin, just standing there, I've never seen that sort of fear on a man's face as I saw on Calvin's. Hickson found Parker standing up, arms raised to the sky, and screaming, he told the Post. It took me a while to get him back to his senses, and the first thing I told him was, Son, ain't nobody gonna believe this. Let's just keep this whole thing to ourselves. Parker said his first instinct, which Hickson initially agreed with, was not to tell anybody about what had happened to them. Shaken and in shock, the men returned to the car to find the passenger door window shattered, though still in place in the frame. When they opened it, the glass fell out. Parker said the car, which was relatively new and had never previously had any issues starting, failed to start several times before it finally cranked, the motor sounding rough. On the drive back home, Hickson changed his mind. He thought they needed to tell someone about what happened to them despite Parker's protests. Well, 
The more I thought about it, the more I thought I had to let some officials know, Hickson said. Parker later said, I felt this case was personal and no one needed to know. Hickson dialed Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi and briefly explained what happened to them before being told that they didn't handle UFO reports anymore. Project Blue Book was finished, they said, and to call the local authorities. The two men had tried the local newspaper, but the door was locked and the night janitor told them no one was there and they would need to come back in the morning. But Hickson was determined to talk about it. They agreed that they would tell the officials that Parker passed out and didn't remember anything, leaving Hickson clear to tell the story without contradiction. More recently, Parker said he let that lie stand because... I wasn't sure what had happened or who it was, so I I didn't want to go back home and say to people, hey, I took a ride on a spaceship. I was supposed to be married in November. Hickson decided they should go to the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff's Captain Glenn Ryder was on duty when the call came in around 11 p.m. Ryder was handed the phone, and I said, can I help you? He said, yeah, we had something happen. You're going to laugh when we tell you what it is. And I said, well, go ahead and tell me. I'm busy. What happened? And he said, we got picked up by a UFO. And I did laugh. He said, I told you you were going to laugh. Still, Ryder told the men to come into the station. What is certain about the night of October the 11th, 1973, is this. When Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker Jr. arrived at the Sheriff's Department in Pascagoula, Mississippi, they were frantic. They told authorities they had just been abducted by aliens. Each had a puncture wound in one arm. Police tried to catch them in a lie, but it didn't work. Both men would later pass polygraph tests. Jackson County Sheriff's deputies had two choices that night. They could believe Parker and Hickson had really been taken by aliens, or prove the two were telling some big story. At first, sheriff's investigators thought the men had been drunk or lying. At the Jackson County Sheriff's Department, the men were questioned separately about their experience. After the questioning, Sheriff Fred Diamond and Captain Ryder left the room. Ryder later said he didn't believe any of Hickson's story. I wasn't really impressed with them, Ryder said. You have people trying to get notoriety, and I thought they were trying to get notoriety with a spaceship. So, to get to the truth, they tried an old trick and secretly placed a tape recorder into an interrogation room at the station and left the two men alone, hoping to catch the pair dropping the act once they left. But they didn't. What they heard next was proof enough for them that the two might not be lying. Hickson and Parker kept on talking about what they had seen and how scared they were. Ryder said, They was upset. I figured they'd say, We got these guys fooled. But that boy, he was especially upset. You can't make up that kind of fear. During the interview, Parker remained silent, something he regretted when he listened to the recording for the first time in 2020. I was wishing I had really opened up to them and told them everything. Parker said. While Parker and Hickson were alone, the hidden recorder was still recording the two talking about fear, sleeplessness, and needing to see a doctor, among other things. At times, it was almost like they were talking to themselves. Jesus Christ, Lord have mercy. I thought I'd been through enough of hell on this earth. 
And now I've got to go through something like this, see? Hickson said. But they could have, you know, I guess they well, they, they could have harmed us, son. Yeah, they had us. They could have done anything to us, but they didn't hurt me. Parker spoke mainly about his anxiety. I just want to cry right now. What's so damn bad about it is nobody's going to believe us. I got to get home and get to bed and take some nervous pills or something, see a doctor or something. I, I can't stand it. I'm about to go all to pieces. I can't sleep like it is. I'm damn near crazy. The two continued talking, and Ryder still remembers Parker's words. I put him in a room with a voice-activated recorder, and that convinced me. When that boy was talking about them coming back to get us, you had an 18-year-old boy that had never seen anything. He was genuinely scared. He was telling Charlie, Don't talk to the deputies. They'll come back and get us. They didn't make it up. I can guarantee that. Parker said that after the deputies listened to the secret tape recording, which he didn't learn existed until much later, they took them more seriously. The two were even sent to Keesler Air Force Base to make sure they weren't radioactive. Parker urged the authorities not to tell anyone about what he and Hickson reported. I wasn't going to tell a soul, but when we got back to the shipyard the next day, they already knew. When they got to work, F.B. Walker and Sons' shipyard was swarmed by news vans. Parker estimated that around 200 reporters were there, hoping to talk to him and Hickson. It was a circus, a media circus, former WALA-TV reporter Rennie Brabner said. Within days, the story went global, and after the two were checked out, Brabner caught up with them. At the emergency room door, there was a line of sheriff's car out there. We went in with our cameras going, and for the first time, we saw the two guys, Brabner said. Like Captain Ryder, Brabner, too, believes something happened that night, but he isn't sure what. Brabner said, I do not think they made it up in the sense that they created it out of cloth. I've been told that Hickson was known to take a drink. Was it in the bottom of a John Barleycorn bottle? I, I don't know. News of the event thrust the two into the media spotlight and put the town of Pascagoula on the map. It was unwanted attention for Parker, who tried to distance himself from it. Within seven days, the Jackson County Sheriff's Department logged more than 2,000 calls from the curious and the afraid. Overnight, it was national news. There were news conferences and cameras thrust in their still-stunned faces. A UFO investigator from Northwest University flew down and said their story checked out. Skeptics called them liars or said Hickson had an episode of sleep paralysis with hypnagogic hallucinations, while Parker was highly suggestible. Believers flooded into Pascagoula by the thousands, wrapped in aluminum foil and sitting all night on the hoods of their cars, waiting for visitors from another world. In addition to the reporters, astronomers and pioneering ufologists Dr. J. Allen Hynek and Dr. James Harder appeared in Pascagoula within 36 hours to interview and hypnotize Parker and Hickson. Now, how he got from California to Pascagoula, Mississippi in that short amount of time, I don't know, but he was down there, Parker later stated about Hynek, who was the scientific advisor for three major UFO studies undertaken by the United States Air Force, Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book. We took polygraph tests, voice stress tests, were hypnotized three times, had more credible witnesses than any case around, and more credible people talking, Parker said. But see, back in the 70s, people thought you was crazy to have done something or seen something like that.
the UFOologists and researchers who interviewed and hypnotized the two concluded they did experience something traumatic. Parker said that he isn't sure who believed him and who didn't at the time because he avoided talking about it for so long. One thing, my daddy-in-law didn't believe me. When this first happened, he told my wife, you don't need to marry him and all that stuff. But then he came back and apologized. He pulled me aside and said, son, I owe you an apology. I didn't believe you when this happened, but I've seen something since then, and I believe it. There's no doubt in my mind that this happened to you. There were hoaxes and humor, too. A Long Beach, Mississippi taxi driver told police a being with pinchers tapped on his window, a story he admitted days later was fake. A Mobile, Alabama television station said it would record a UFO appearance predicted by a psychic between Mobile and nearby Pascagoula. Roughly 1,000 cars converged on the spot where nothing happened. And an Ocean Springs alderman proposed an ordinance making it illegal to operate a UFO at more than twice the speed of sound on US-90, the coast's main drag. Mayor Tom Stennis voted against the ordinance, joking he didn't want to discourage tourism. Pascagoula native Rebecca Davis distinctly remembers Parker and Hickson's story first breaking when she was 12 years old. I was at a friend's house, and you know we live in the Bible Belt. I asked my friend's dad why he was putting aluminum foil in the windows. He told me it was to keep the aliens from getting to our brains. When Davis got home, she immediately asked her parents and grandparents about the aliens. I was stopped in my tracks and told, We do not talk about these things. Don't ever mention it again. I was brought up a missionary Baptist, and so, yeah, it was taboo. You just didn't talk about it. And pretty much, South Mississippi was that way. Despite the outward secrecy, when Davis's grandmother passed away in 2005 and the family cleaned out her house, Davis discovered her grandmother had saved every local newspaper article about the case of Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson. Hickson was 42 at the time of the event and was well-known in the community, so perhaps he felt more able to handle the media crush. He recounted the experience to anyone who would listen. He went on Johnny Carson and Dick Cavett. Charles Hickson wrote a book on his encounter in 1983 and spoke numerous times about it. Hickson, who died in 2011, was very public about his experience. Parker, who now lives in Moss Point, Mississippi, was not, and spent much of his life distancing himself from the event. He was 18 or 19 when it happened. He had just arrived in Pascagoula from an even smaller town and had planned to earn some extra money before returning home to get married. He told the media he had passed out at the beginning of the whole affair and couldn't remember what happened. That was the only lie he told, he said to the Sun-Herald in 2018. In fact, he did remember what happened and was so afraid that aliens had infected him with something that when he got home from the sheriff's department, he took a bath in bleach. Within a few weeks, he skipped town. He got married and picked up work in oil fields. If someone at a job recognized him, he would quit. If Hickson was trying to get rich from the story, it didn't work. Parker told the Sun-Herald that before Hickson's death in 2011, he occasionally paid the older man's electric bill. Parker, now in his 60s, slowly came out of hiding in recent years and in 2018 published a book of his own. Since then, people who had been largely quiet about their experiences that night are now speaking out. 
on June the 22nd, 2019. The riverbank where the men said the close encounter happened got a historical marker, calling it one of the best documented cases of alien abduction. After decades of avoiding media attention, Parker was there for the dedication. For 46 years, I kept it a secret. I didn't even tell my wife about it, Calvin Parker said. One of the frequent skepticisms over the years concerned why no one else had seen the object if it was so large and bright. Beginning in 2018, after 45 years, new witnesses finally began to emerge that supported the men's story. Three witnesses told the Mississippi Clarion Ledger newspaper in 2018 that on the night in question, they saw an unidentified flying object with flashing blue lights going up and down the Pascagoula River at the same time and in the same area as Hickson and Parker. They said they kept it secret all these years because they were afraid of people's reactions. One of them, Maria Blair, told the Clarion Ledger, the story is very true. That's what's bothered me for 45 years. It's been on my mind for 45 years. Maria and husband Jerry Blair of Theodore, Alabama, were sitting in their 1969 Pontiac GTO in the parking lot of Graham's Seafood on the opposite side of the river. Jerry worked for the business and was waiting on a boat captain to take him offshore. The captain was late and the Blairs waited for hours. Just after dark, Maria saw something strange. I was looking at the sky and I noticed a blue light in the sky over where they were fishing, Maria said. It started moving and it seemed like it was following along the Pascagoula River. I just seen the lights on it. It was just going back and forth. Sometimes it would just sit there and it went on for 20 to 25 minutes. Maria said she initially thought it was a plane but realized the flight pattern and hovering were not indicative of plane. Jerry watched it also, but didn't think much of it. Well, I thought it was a helicopter initially and just blew it off, Jerry said. It landed about 150 to 200 yards from us. I was just north of the bridge and it was just south of the bridge. I was there, but stupid me, didn't pay much attention to it. I was just going offshore and thinking about other things. After they lost sight of the craft, the two went to put Jerry's clothing and other items on the boat. While walking down the lighted pier, something else caught their attention. We heard this loud thumping splash in the river, Maria said. I looked over the side of the pier and that's when I thought I saw a person in the river. I was looking right down on it. It looked like a person, but there was something different about it. It only came to the surface of the water. As soon as I saw it, it just went back down in the water. Whatever Maria had seen, which she thought was a person in some sort of diving gear, did not resurface. Jerry, who was walking ahead of her and didn't see it, said it must have been a dolphin. She said she is positive it was not a dolphin. Jerry went to work that evening, and Maria returned home. In following days, she heard reports of Parker and Hickson's experience. The descriptions of the aliens matched what she had seen in the water. I thought it was a person, but now, now I think it was an alien, Maria said. What Parker described was exactly it. Later that evening, 
Judy Branning was sitting in a car a few miles away at a traffic signal with her roommate and their dates. We were on a double date that night, Branning said. We were at a red light at Chicot and Highway 90, and we were basically sitting on the railroad track. I saw some lights, and I wasn't sure what I was looking at because it was so far away. Like the Blairs, Branning thought it was an airplane at first, but as it came closer and flew over the car she was in, the four realized it wasn't. It didn't make noise, Branning said. It had bright, bright lights. It got closer, and it was hovering. It was kind of a saucer shape or disc shape with a rounded top. The radio started sounding like it was running through all the stations and the car went dead. We were freaking out. Branning said after it passed over the car, the craft shot straight up at a rate of speed she'd never seen and disappeared. It left her shaken. I didn't sleep that night thinking about it, Branning said. Branning said the four agreed not to say anything about what they saw. She said over the years, she told a few people, but not many, because she was scared of people's reactions. Now 74 years old, she said she doesn't care if people believe her or not. Maria said she told people what she'd seen, but largely stopped talking about it in the weeks following that evening. When you talked about it back then, people thought you were crazy, Maria said. Back then, when I saw what Calvin and Charles went through, I kind of backed down talking about it. The story's very true. That's what's bothered me for 45 years. It's been on my mind for 45 years. Joey Nelson of Mobile was 25 at the time and traveled to make money playing pool. He said he and two friends were driving on US-90 on their way to win some money on the night Parker and Hickson claimed to have been abducted. That night we were going to New Orleans, Nelson said. I would say we were probably in between Pascagoula and Biloxi. We were driving and talking. Nelson was in the front passenger seat, and when he looked ahead, he saw something he'd never seen before. A big orb of light up in the air, Nelson said. We saw that, and nobody could say anything. Nobody could move. Nelson said the three were traveling at about 75 miles an hour when something came out of the sky and hovered in front of them. After a while, a small ball of light came down right next to me, Nelson said. It was about the size of a beach ball, I'd say. I don't know how far away it was, but it seemed like if that windshield wasn't there, I could have touched it. It started flashing and clicking and flashing and clicking. You could audibly hear it. I know it sounds crazy, but it seemed like they were taking pictures. It seemed like it was in front of me 10 minutes or so, I don't know. We were just mesmerized and then it streaked away. I talked to Ricky and Jimmy who were in the car with me, but other people would have thought you were an idiot, Nelson said. I wasn't going to tell anybody. I kept quiet a long time. In recent years, even more instances of validation of the story have emerged. More than two dozen witnesses have come forward with their own reports of UFO sightings on or around the Pascagoula River in Jackson County in the weeks surrounding October the 11th. One man reported seeing a large ship floating over the river from the cab of his crane while he worked that night. A couple reported seeing a large vessel with a blue light flying low over the river as they drove over a bridge. When the man went to visit his aunt the next day, who also lived in the area, before he said anything about the sighting, she said, you'll never guess what I saw last night. 
and reported the same thing. The secret sheriff office recording was sent to Parker in 2020. Parker explained the man who gave him copies of the recording was an officer with the Pascagoula Police Department on the night the abduction occurred, but did not want to be identified. Parker said the officer was involved because he fielded roughly 50 phone calls that night from people claiming to have seen something unusual in the sky. As was expected by Hickson and Parker, their story was often met with skepticism and ridicule. Aviation journalist and UFO skeptic Philip Klass believed Hickson and Parker's report was a hoax. In his book, UFOs Explained, he noted Hickson changed some details of his story and claimed a polygraph operator whose test Hickson passed wasn't up to the task. Parker later passed a lie detector test himself. Committee for Skeptical Inquiry investigator Joe Nickel wrote, Hickson's behavior was questionable and he appeared to later alter or embellish his claims. Nickel speculated Hickson may have fantasized the alien encounter during a hypnagogic waking dream state and suggested Parker's corroboration of the tale was likely due to suggestibility, since he initially told police he had passed out at the beginning of the incident and failed to regain consciousness until it was over. A claim supported by Hickson himself when he later made an appearance on the television show to tell the truth. In addition, Parker was in a vulnerable position, newly hired at the shipyard with Hickson being his supervisor, although this would not be the case later when he left the area and took new jobs and could easily have exposed any hoax perpetrated by Hickson. We did everything we knew to try to break their stories, retired Jackson County Sheriff's Captain Glenn Ryder told the Washington Post in 1975. If they were lying to me, they should be in Hollywood. Of course, I lost my job at the shipyard because people wouldn't leave me alone, Parker related in 2019. He drove back home to Laurel, hoping to leave the events of October 11th behind in Pascagoula. And it started from... Just started from there. It was just like a roller coaster. I went to work. The reporter would show up at work while I was working. And, you know, the people you work for, eventually, they get tired of that. So I'd lose another job. Eventually, Parker went by the name Randy to avoid the constant barrage of press. And that's where I went from there, to hide. But this has followed me all my life. In the end, the easiest thing to do would have been to simply admit the whole incident was a hoax and move on with his life. But neither Calvin Parker nor Charles Hickson ever denied what happened to them on that night of October the 11th, 1973, in Pascagoula, Mississippi. So, is the story true? Did Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker experience an alien abduction? Unlike the Socorro, New Mexico case, there was no physical evidence found at the location of the event, and the witnesses were not as powerful as an unimpeachable police officer like Lonnie Zamora. Yet, this case is compelling. First, there were two people involved, whose accounts are very similar and though one began telling his story right away and the other waited until 45 years later, the accounts have retained the same basic details. Hickson was a Korean War veteran 
who had experienced battles, and Parker was a reticent teenager who respected his elders, but thought for himself. He wanted to make extra money before he married a Jones County girl. He had been on the job only a day, and he was not looking for trouble or notoriety that an alien abduction hoax would certainly have brought about. We've heard Hickson's story. He would tell it at church gatherings. But Parker is the young man who walked away from the notoriety and went home to work the oil fields with his new wife in tow. He said every now and then, someone would recognize him and he'd have to leave a job. He wanted to earn a good living and just live a normal life. Though Hickson tried for years to make a living off the incident, Parker, now 66, says there were times when he paid Hickson's electric bill to help him make ends meet toward the end of his life. If Hickson had been looking for a big payday from perpetuating a hoax, it didn't come about. Parker is the one who looks so sullen and withdrawn in the well-known photo that shows them soon after the incident. He was the one the sheriff's deputy said was climbing the walls when left alone in an interrogation room during their questioning of Hickson. It was Parker's reaction that convinced law enforcement officers that something bad had indeed happened. In the background, deputies could hear Parker begging Hickson, don't talk to them, Charlie. Those people will come back and get us. They don't want us to talk. And those that knew him said he was terrified he had been infected by the alien beings and could harm people around him. Their story was clear, reported quickly, and believed. The Jackson County Sheriff said he believed them, later saying he believed Charles Hickson believed the story he was telling. Sheriff Fred Diamond ordered a two-and-a-half-hour polygraph test given by a New Orleans firm less than three weeks after the incident on October 30, 1973. The agent administering the test signed a statement that said, It is my opinion that Charles Hickson told the truth about the following things. He believes he saw a spaceship. He believes he was taken into the spaceship and he believes he saw three space creatures. Jackson County Sheriff's Captain Glenn Ryder said there were three sightings of an unexplained flash of light reported that night it happened, but he did not include those in the official police report. He said the report was simple. He interviewed Hickson and Parker, checked out the site, and found nothing. Ryder said he later learned there had been sightings of unexplained lights all along the coast in the nights before Hickson and Parker had their experience. And with witnesses coming forward after 45 years to share their stories that corroborate Hickson and Parker, it would appear this is more than just a story of two fishermen making up a tall tale. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Well, if you're a fan of the program, you'll know that every Tuesday on our Facebook page, we post a quiz. And then we provide you the answer on that week's episode. By the way, if you haven't gone out to the Facebook page, let me make another plug here. It's got some really good content. On Mondays, we do Monster Monday and have some monster posted. 
Tuesdays are the quiz, as I mentioned. Wednesday are paranormal books and films. Thursdays have current news events on the paranormal. And then, of course, Fridays, we drop the latest episode. So this Tuesday's question was, what is a skinwalker? What is a skinwalker? Is it A, a type of extraterrestrial, B, a swamp creature in Louisiana, C, a tech device used in ghost hunting, or D, a Navajo shape-shifting witch? Again, what is a skinwalker? Is it a type of extraterrestrial, a swamp creature in Louisiana, a tech device used in ghost hunting, or a Navajo shape-shifting witch? And the answer is... D, a Navajo shape-shifting witch. In Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. The term is never used for healers. They might also possess living animals or people and walk around in their bodies. Skinwalkers may be male or female, though they're usually male. And in order to become a skinwalker, the person must be initiated by a secret society that requires the evilest of deeds, the killing of a close family member most often a sibling. That's kind of terrible. After this task has been completed, the individual then acquires supernatural powers, which gives them that ability to shape-shift into animals. Those who have talked of their encounters with these evil beings describe a number of ways to know if a skinwalker is nearby. They make sounds around homes, such as knocking on windows, banging on walls, and scraping noises on the roof. On some occasions, they have been spied peering through windows. More often, they appear in front of vehicles in hopes of causing a serious accident. So, if you're driving out in the high desert anytime soon, be sure to keep a watch out on the road. And you're not going to want to miss episode 6 next week. That episode will be about gargoyles, but in particular, one truly bizarre case of a gargoyle-like creature terrorizing the small town of Van Meter, Iowa in 1903. What was this mysterious creature, and where did it come from and return to? Come back next week for a close encounter with the Van Meter visitor. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by. <laughs>